The Akkad and Kokai Report, episode number 75. Welcome to the Akkad and Kokai Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics, join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Koka diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello everyone, Michelle Akkad here. On this episode, I'll be interviewing Dr. Pritpal Tambor, who's a physician from the UK. I'll be introducing him in a moment, but uh, Pritpal and I have been following one another on social media for a few years. Um, I knew he was interested in the question of health, you know, how we define health, um, how our understanding of health uh, shapes uh, the way we organize healthcare, and uh, therefore to think about health a little bit more closely maybe helpful and uh, may, you know, uh, take us out of the, the current uh, morass in healthcare that we find ourselves in. So I always, you know, I've always wanted to uh, find out a little bit more about what, um, what he thinks and how he views things. A couple of months ago, Richard Smith, who's the former editor of the BMJ, wrote an editorial that I happened to read. And uh, in that ed- editorial, he mentions the work of Pritball. So I thought, hey, what a great... Um, opportunity to invite Pritpal on the show and uh, and have a chat with him. Uh, we did not mention the editorial uh, during our conversation, but I'm telling you about it now and it will be available on the show notes. I think you'll uh, find the discussion interesting and perhaps even more so because both of us come from um, different um, philosophical perspectives in terms of uh, social p- uh, policy and politics and whatnot, but we're still able to have a great conversation and uh, share thoughts and ideas in a very enjoyable way. So I trust you'll enjoy it as well. So here we go. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me on this uh, next episode of the Akkad and Koka Report. Um, and Dr. Koka is not uh, with us today, uh, unfortunately, but it's my great pleasure to have uh, as our guest Dr. Pritpal Tambor. And I'm going to say a few things about um, Dr. Tambor uh, uh, by way of introduction, but... Um, I will give him a chance to tell us his journey um, uh, because that will be central to uh, the meat of our discussion. The reason I've invited Dr. Tambor is because he and I share a very strong interest on the question of health, which we both think is uh, central to the conversation. Um, in a way, we both feel that the entire healthcare system is built on, uh, without any kind of, um, at least on an unhealthy understanding of what health is. And that's at the root of the problem. And he's exploring ways to, uh, to address that. And um, so, I am, so am I in my own way. Um, but I, I will ask him to tell us his journey to what got him to this uh, realization, which is not very common um, among physicians and, and uh, healthcare professionals. I'll just say a few words here. Uh, Dr. Tambor is a former physician editor at, of TEDMED, uh, which is uh, the TED platform's uh, dedicated health event. He's also a former editor at the British Medical Journal and the former medical director of Map of Medicine, which is a company that tried to improve the flow of patients through healthcare on the basis of clinical evidence. And um, through this work with uh, with TEDMED and and these other experiences, he became convinced that the uh, glamorous and tech-led world of health innovation is unlikely to have much impact on the patients, particularly those at the lower rungs of the uh, socioeconomic gradient. And therefore, he's involved now in a number of, of projects and um, community efforts in the UK, in the US, and elsewhere in the world 
to try to um, uh, develop a, some kind of uh, community participatory process um, to tackle the question of, of health and healthcare. But uh, we'll get into this um, with uh, Pritpal uh, through the show. Pritpal, thank you very much for joining us. Pritpal, it's sorry, I, I just here, mispronounced your first name. <laughs> uh, Pritpal, let me so let me start. Your um, where did you go to medical school, and uh, what was your journey? Just simply uh, from that point on. So medical school was Birmingham, UK. Um, classic second generation Indian nerd who was very good at science um, and ended up at medical school. Um, and then I was really lucky. I took a a simple um, while I was at the end of my fourth year of medical school and I won a scholarship at the British Medical Journal um, which then led to the sabbatical so I was there for um, about 14 months and that taught me a lot about um, what is research what is evidence how do you peer review all of that kind of stuff and really the difference between research knowledge research and knowledge um, and I became quite passionate about the importance of knowledge um, and so I did that, went back to medical school, graduated, started my surgical training, um, and very quickly realized that I wanted to go back into the world of medical knowledge. Um, I was at a company called Biomed Central, um, which was able to essentially disrupt academic publishing by making it open access, which was um, something I'm very proud of being part of. Um, and that kind of taught me that a lot of established way of thinking could be questioned in that case around publishing, but it actually just gave me an understanding that you could look at the world differently, especially can, through new technologies. Can you can you uh, elaborate a little bit on this distinction between research and knowledge and, and how you view things? Um, so the so um, the classic, you know, um, I can't remember the triangle in my head, but there's sort of data, and then data that organizes information, and then information in context is knowledge, and then knowledge over time is wisdom. Um, and so research, classic primary research will give you information. So it's data that goes in and it's the, the conclusion is information when it's only when that information is in context, do you have anything that you could call knowledge? Um, and I was really interested in that because quite often in medicine, we're quite often talking about research findings and that's really just information. How does that information operate in the clinical environment is knowledge. Um, and also then how over time, um, do we make sense of data information and knowledge is wisdom and all of those things actually play out in our understanding of the world around us. Um, medicine, I think, tends to fall too often into this idea that there's information and you act on information um, and without that context. Um, and I think in a way, the evidence-based medicine movement fallen into that by thinking, oh, we generated some evidence uh, and therefore we're going to act on it and it loses context and it seems to be devoid of any kind of clinical wisdom that has been pulled together over the years. Of course, the caveat here is, is that, you know, for many years we had a lot of wisdom, which was just, you know, experts sitting around deciding what's what without ever having done any research. So that wasn't a good thing, but I think we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I know that's actually something you've written about in the past. Um, and so that's my sort of, okay. I got very passionate about that. Okay. And so you, you uh, finished your surgical training, and then what did you do at that point? Well, no, I only started, but, I, uh, that, but then I, um, after uh, about six months to join this startup, which was kind of reinventing how medical research would be published. So I was there for about um, five and a half, six years. 
Um, and that was great. Um, and then I went to run a company called F1000 Medicine. And it was, I thought it was fascinating because what we were doing was we recruited about two and a half thousand key opinion leaders across uh, about 200 disciplines and sub-disciplines of medicine to choose the research articles that really matter. And the premise of the company was is that actually, despite all the volume of information coming out of medical research, not much of it actually matters. And, not, and definitely not much of it matters to clinical practice. And so we wanted to work through experts to try to work out um, what, was, what, what were those pieces um, of research that mattered. Um, and it's fascinating because if you talk to people who are really at the head of the game in their field, they'll quite often say that there's probably at best one or two articles a month worth reading, which kind of contrasts against the, especially during training, when you sort of feel overloaded the amount of information coming out. And, you know, it was, the criticism of it was it was eminence-based medicine as opposed to evidence-based medicine. But as I've just said earlier on, I think there's a place for wisdom. And so I thought it was really interesting. And I ran that company for a couple of years. And then I moved to this company, which you talked about in my introduction, which is about how do you use um, information and knowledge in the form of pathways to try to improve the flow of patients through hospital systems. So you'd essentially have a kind of tree diagram of saying, okay, this person presents with this. Do they have this, this, and this? Okay, well, if not, go here. If not, do this. We were one of the first companies to take all those little islands of content per decision moment and encode it with SNOMED, um, a taxonomy, which you probably know, and then try to work out how that would then work with electronic medical record systems in order to work out how you surface knowledge real time in a clinical encounter. Um, extraordinarily difficult. Um, and I think that very few people have got much further than where we were 10 years ago, as whenever I kind of delve back into that world. Um, and it's actually, uh, I was fascinated by, I was very interested in how you use knowledge to actually begin to change systems. And what I was really fascinated by was the fact that actually knowledge doesn't change systems because actually good clinical practice might be more expensive. So in the UK, where you have a kind of sole funder of a healthcare system, there's a lot of uh, sensitivity around cost. And so there was a lot of neurosis around, well, this might be good clinical practice by the evidence, but what's it going to do for the bottom line? Um, and so, and a lot of that isn't really studied. We don't really know how the application of evidence really affects the cost of delivery of care. I think we're only really beginning to understand things like that. Um, but it was a fascinating four years, and it really took me from being a kind of medical editor, a sort of nerd who cared about knowledge, um, to then become someone who understood that actually system change is extraordinarily difficult. Um, and this is at a time when a lot of those companies were described as health IT. Um, and it was just at the emergence of digital health, I decided to jump out of that and sort of make myself a kind of VP of medicine for hire to startups. Um, and that was in the kind of vibrant digital health scene that we had in London, but I was also kind of um, in the US as well. And actually, one of the things you learn very quickly is a lot of startups want your advice, but they want to pay you in equity, but you can't, you can't really pay your lunch with equity. Um, so you very really quickly realize that you've got a really interesting job, but you're very poor and hungry. Um, and so it was then that I somehow hit the radar of um, TedMed, and they were looking for a physician, um, someone who would help them think about the clinical veracity of the ideas that were being pitched for the stage, um, and to um, help them choose the stuff that had some some clinical credibility. We didn't have to go as far as having lots of rigorous trials around those ideas, but there needed to be enough for it to be credible, 
and to have some chance of replication and scale um, within the system, within the US healthcare system, um, and sort of help them choose the stuff for the stage, which was a lot of fun. It was a, a, a really extraordinary kind of 18 months. I really enjoyed that. So that was my journey up until then. Shall I carry on? Yeah. Um, I'm just... Um... Dead meds, the, the that seems a little clear. I want to go back a little bit to your your prior um, uh, experiences. Who was um, who was the the customer, so to speak, of of you know uh, from the companies that you were working for? Was it big healthcare systems, or were you in England pitching you know these ideas to? With so this with the, with the pathway companies that yes the pathway companies yes yeah so the pathway company classically sold to governments okay. Um, outside of the US. Um, so we had uh, a fair amount of work in debt. This is in the public domain. I just suddenly thought, is this confidential, but it's not. Um, so we had um, work in Denmark. Um, as, I was, as I was leaving, there was work starting in New Zealand. Um, we were in the UK and most Americans don't realize that the four nations of the UK actually have slightly different approaches to healthcare. So although we say NHS, they're actually very different in the four places. Um, so we had activity in Northern Ireland, a pilot in Scotland, um, some pilots in Wales, and but a big deployment across the whole of England. Um, and then we went to Abu Dhabi as well and was talking to some of their policy people. And okay. So the customer story is, is, in those countries was really the kind of policy um, uh, communities. So, so you know, government government communities that were trying to work out how do they try to how do they homogenize care in those places where it could be homogenized, not for everyone, of course, but how do you, the stuff, the 80%, if we use Pareto's law, the 80% that's standard, how do you create standards around that? How do you implement standards around that? Mm -hmm. but, but the question of uh, context and knowledge and wisdom, was that already in, uh, in your mind and at uh, the forefront of what you were thinking about when you were developing those pathways? Uh, and did you feel that the pathways were a step in the right direction in that sense, or did so it the seem pathways, so, yeah. yeah, so I think so. I think what happens is is essentially when you're writing pathways, you're not using primary research; you're using secondary research and really leaning on guidelines. So you're um, in, in in England that was easy because you had the, uh, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, which has a strong reputation around guidance production, but guidance production is not a neutral process. And so there is a, um, a cost per quality basis to the work that the National Institute for Clinical Excellence does here in England. Um, whereas when you find that when you look at guidance production in the US, there isn't any of that consideration most of the time. And so you're trying to bring together pieces of information. So, so that, is, that is knowledge, so you're bringing it together. Um, and then you're kind of, you know, you're really kind of playing across different cultural approaches to health at that point. Um, and what was interesting for us was that in England, it was very simple. You went with, you went with NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence. What, what I found really interesting was when I went to Denmark, and one of the things that I, was, I would often do is to go to places and spend time with the clinicians. And in Denmark, it was the PCPs that they really wanted to have on board. And so I, would, I, went, I spent some time with some PCPs, asking them about their consumption of information knowledge and, and all that kind of stuff. What was really interesting was is that at times they were super favorable towards a UK guideline. At other times it was a European guideline and at other times it was a US guideline. Hmm. And there didn't actually seem to be any clear rhyme or reason as to why the Danes might have those things. It seemed to be specialty specific. Um, and so that caused quite a lot of um, um, 
difficulty is we thought about how do you shift information that sits in a UK context, therefore UK contextualized knowledge, how do you then shift that to Denmark? And there's a, it was a real challenge actually. And actually I spend, I still do consulting in, um, in clinical publishing. And I, I still hear publishers making lots of really bad assumptions around the idea that somehow information is global or, or that knowledge, I should say really knowledge is global. Actually, even information, even research information, all research is done in a context and you can't just globalize it. You have to really think about the context in which it's generated. Right. Um, and we got, you know, I, I just did the Denmark work in the most detail and I just remember being really kind of, you know, struggling with that and saying, wow, what is knowledge? How do we, how do we make this work? Um, and the fact that it's not neutral. Okay. And, and even then, I mean, I, I suspect you'll tell us, uh, uh, in a moment, um, how you've, you're narrowing what, you, what you mean by contact, because the context here is the, the national context. If you're talking about getting a contract from an entire government, a national government, but there are uh, local contexts, there are community contexts, there are individual yeah. contexts and so forth. So, and ideally we want to treat the, you know, the person, and so forth. Yeah, you've just described a whole bunch of layers and the tension between those layers was fascinating to behold. I mean, the one that I, I won't mention the country here, but the one I thought was fascinating was how the policy wonks who were essentially going to write the check for us seemed to simply believe they could homogenize care. And I was very uncomfortable in those conversations because I, you know, because I was thinking, no, 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 what we're doing is giving you a starting point through which you might then have a local conversation. But we're not telling you that this is how asthma should be done in your country. Right. But the, that was what we were getting from the policy wonks was like, oh, no, no, but this is the evidence. And we were like, no, hold on. I was, you know, in conversations going, well, it's not that simple. But of course, you know, at that point, you're trying to make a sale. How do you make it more complicated before they sign the check? Do you say it after they sign the check? It's, it's actually becomes, from a physician perspective, there's a sort of moral ambiguity at that point because you're sort of about to sell something that you know is more Complex. Right. That's very interesting, and we'll uh, we'll uh, cover that, I'm sure, as we as we go along. So, what's next? Uh, so, I what I what I found fascinating by working with TedMed was there was this idea that this these were the best ideas on the future of health, and what really struck me was it was it was great fun. We got a lot of interesting stuff on the stage. So, you know, I don't want to like suggest that it wasn't good. But what really struck me was that if you looked at who's getting sick, people lower down a socioeconomic gradient. Um, and if you looked at the innovations on stage or the ideas on stage, there seemed to be quite a radical mismatch. And this was at a time when the answer to everything was an app, right? Do you remember like five years ago, it was like you put it on an app and you got another notification. I don't know about you, but I like, I barely look at my notifications anymore. I look at what I want to look at. Um, sure. And people were getting notification fatigue then, but, at the time, a lot of the sort of digital innovators were thinking like, you know, we'll buzz and tell you when you need to take your drug or some other sort of particularly shallow, facile way of thinking how you can control consumers of healthcare. Um, and I was sort of really struck by this lack of understanding about what's happening in low income neighborhoods. And I say that because I grew up in a working class community. And I knew when I went to medical school, one of the things that I really sort of felt was is that as we started looking at the sociology of health, I'd be in these lectures, in these, you know, listening about what it meant to be working class and what your, how your life was and therefore how it impacted on your health. And I always found that very shallow in its conception. 
um, and, so, and quite frankly, disrespectful to what it means to be working class. And so it was interesting to me that that kind of echoed back from when I was at medical school. And I suddenly thought to myself, well, I hated having to pass sociology exams, you know, the sociology of medicine exams at medical school. I can't remember what they were called. Um, I hated having to do those exams then. And now I'm here as a person with power as the physician editor of TedMed, and I'm still kind of complicit with this whole thing. And that's what led me to really just sit down and, and start a blog, um, which in those days, you know, when you're in the digital world, the answer is always to start a blog. Um, but what I wanted to do was to find innovators willing to work with communities on their premise of what health is. And I had a subtext to that, which is if you look at the fact that healthcare is financially unsustainable, so much of it is because it's a supply defined industry. We, you know, so we define a thing called a disease and then we stick in, you know, sort of a, a code next to it and then we can invoice next to it and suddenly everyone's got it. Right. Mm -hmm. Or we create, we create some kind of, you know, new visualizing technique and therefore we visualize in the body, we see stuff, suddenly have that diagnosis and that stuff was never really an issue before and suddenly it becomes an issue. Not all of it, of course, there's good stuff that's happened along the way, but it just felt to me as though if you leave the definition of health to the medical system, all you have is the perfect recipe for growth, growth of disease, growth of cost, um, share of GDP, et cetera, et cetera. And it felt to me like it was only going to be when you reframe the conversation, are you ever going to get on top of the sustainability issue? And that's why I wanted, those are the sort of dual reasons why I wanted to go and find people who were willing to go to community and say, what does health mean to you? So what, uh, how did you go about doing that? Um... So I was duplicitous as you know, <laughs> I was, <laughs> I basically, I, I basically went, I just sort of rang people up who were in the, who had kind of hit my radar while I was working with Ted and Ted Med. And one of the things that I just said was I wanted to talk to them, but at that point they knew me as the physician editor of TedMed, but this was a sort of side project. Um, so I think they all took my interview because they thought that they were, you know, might get on the stage. Um, and so that wasn't really what I was doing, but so I just literally would just ring them up. I would um, ring them up, email them. I still do it by the way. I've just sent out five or six emails to some projects that I think are really interesting and said, can I interview you? Um, and so that, that was it. And I, I first started just by writing about them. And eventually what happened was, was they wanted the people that I was interviewing wanted to meet some of the people that I'd previously interviewed. And that became my first meeting, which happened to be in a friend's boardroom in Manhattan. And there were 16 of us. And we were sort of grappling with this thing about if you start from a community, <clears throat> if you start from a community's understanding of his health, what does that mean about how you structure work? Um, and so that was what we afterwards, I thought, oh, I need to give that meeting a name. So I call that the Creating Health Collaborative. And then I've done a whole bunch of other projects that I've kind of loosely called Creating Health Collaborative. So I've had two more meetings um, in Manhattan in that friend's boardroom. Um, and then um, eventually got to a point where uh, the knowledge felt quite, what I was learning felt quite consolidated. So there's around this idea of a bunch of principles. Um, about what it means to work with those communities. And that then led to establishing a nonprofit in the US and a specific UK project. Um, but so that's what happened a couple of years ago. Um, so there was, the, there were, so what I was looking for was recurrent themes. And the reason why I was looking for that was 
it felt to me like as I was going to innovators to say, what does it mean to work from a community's understanding of its health? The same things kept coming up. And I thought to myself, well, this is interesting because potentially this is a useful framework for other people who want to copy that. And I was really interested in this idea of a list. And the reason why I am is because I actually published a second version of the song, the consult statement. And the consult statement is the list that underpins what is a randomized control trial. So I was uh, the medical editor at Biomed Central and we were publishing the second version of the consult statement. And I remember being completely underwhelmed by how the consult statement had been generated. It was sort of 14 people in a room saying, what do you look for when you peer review a randomized control trial? I mean, it was obviously a lot more than that, but that's how it felt when I was looking at the methodology. And I thought to myself, wow, the RCT is this kind of almost draconian force over knowledge in healthcare. And yet it's kind of, its solidity seems to come from a list that was pulled together with a, from a bunch of people with frontline knowledge. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting phenomenon that I felt like I want to replicate that. And so I thought, why don't I look at what are the recurring principles I'm finding in all of this work? And why don't I try to enumerate the kind of common features? And that I now call the 12 principles. So it started off as a list of nine, it became 11, and it's currently 12. But let me ask you a little bit, some clarity here. You were interviewing and you were working with people who were actually involved with some kind of community health in, um, initiative and and then came to you with their, I mean, you, you would discuss what they had learned from their experience, their own direct experience with certain communities. Yeah, so Correct. essentially I would say to them, it, what does it mean to start from a community's understanding of its health? What does that mean? So how do you elicit it? How do you hear from people? How does it, what does it mean about how you structure the work? Like just like over and over again, what does this mean? What are your problems? To be honest, the, the, the way I would do is I'd understand it, but in the meetings, I would get people, I would get people to sort of talk to me. So every time people came to a meeting, they would present in 10 minutes. It would take me about three hours to get them to a 10 minute presentation. I would spend three hours with them drilling down to what I really understand, understood about their work. And then I would always get them to, so that was sort of getting the meat of what it means to start from a community's understanding of its health. And then I would always get them to end with three questions. Um, the first one is, is, what is your community's definition of health? The second one I ask them is, are they actually doing any work right now? There's a lot of theory out there, but are they doing any work? And the third one, which is actually far more fundamental than it sounds, is that are they willing to share the struggle? And the reason why I ask that question is so often people want to talk about the glory of their work or talk about their early findings, but we know that what we have in this area is repeated failure. And so what I really want to hear about is the failure and of course what precedes failure is struggle, usually. Uh, and so I ask them those three things. What's your community's definitions of health? Are you doing any work right now? No theory. And are you willing to share the struggle? Okay, very good. And so on the basis of this, you were able to, uh, over time, identify uh, a dozen principles or so and yes. can you can you yeah, give us some example we're not going to go through all 12 principles and we'll have a link on the show notes uh, to your document that uh, um, you know lists them out but give us an example here of, of two or three principles that you think are most important yeah so what I've been doing intentionally from the beginning is looking for common themes across all the people that I've been spending time with and over the time, we've looked back and started calling them three principles because they were common themes. And then eventually we thought, oh, these are actually principles you need to think about when you're doing community-facing work. 
and that you know this is specifically written for the healthcare audience. So the three that I might pull out for this audience would be, for instance, um, number nine, measure what matters. I know that sounds small and banal, but actually very often people do community-based work. They might go in because of diabetes, but when they ask the communities what matters to them in terms of their health, they hear about something else. They act on the basis of the something else, but they always then go and report back on the diabetes. Mm -hmm. There's no better way to infantilize the community you're working with than by just simply ignoring what they said. So measure what they said matters is one that I think has come up a lot. The other one is that I think comes up a lot is um, operate at multiple levels at all, uh, at all times. Um, as things stand, I've, I've delineated four. I suspect there are five. But there's work at the individual, work with individuals in the community, try to work out what work with the community, work with institutions, local institutions that really matter and shape a community, and then work with policymakers as well. And that is policy as much about local employers as it might be about government policies as well. So working at those four levels is a principle. I think it might be five. We might also want to work at, at the level of family. Okay. Um, but that's one. And then just one more that I think comes up a lot is that I think it's important to build a vehicle buffered from the constraints of existing systems. And what I mean by that is if you're getting healthcare dollars, you inevitably end up having to op uh, report on the basis of a healthcare outcome. And that can often get in the way of really reporting on the thing that really matters to people. So if you can buffer the vehicle that you're working on and its KPIs from the metrics associated with those dollars, you've got more chance of actually doing community facing work. You look like you want to ask a question. Right. I was, I was going to So, but I mean, how, how do you define a community? I mean, what, what constituted a community? Uh, yeah. So I started, I started with a very poor understanding. I mean, by the way, I, you know, I've, I've had people beat me up about all of my assumptions and all that kind of stuff uh, repeatedly over the last six and a half years. I've sort of been disabused of every notion that I had when I came into it. I'm yet another kind of infantilizing physician, assuming his power over communities. I, I have, I've had that thrown at me, and I think there's a lot, a lot of merit to that argument. Um, uh, so, actually, just say your question again, because I forgot how yeah, you. Yeah, how how do you define a community to begin with? And then perhaps a related question is why why focus on the community? Why start on the community, um, as opposed to the individual, which may have been the more traditional way of thinking about health. So, so def my definition of community started geographic. And I would just say those people over there, I started in a very kind of um, bull in the China shop kind of way saying, oh, there's those communities. I've had since then people explain to me that that is not what a community is. A community is a group of people who have a short term shared purpose, blah, blah, blah. So you can have online communities, this, that and the other. So I've been um, disabused of my sort of very simple notion of that. But I, so that was how I started with a geographic one. Now I'm much more, when I interview people, I say, well, what do you mean by community? So I let them define community. Why community and not individual was because I was very affected by some work um, actually came out um, under the brand of the OECD. Um, and it was by a couple of researchers that were looking at the connection between social capital and health. And one of the reasons why, and so, you know, the, the, what that was showing was a correlation between higher amounts of social capital and better health. That was a correlation that was in that paper. Now, lots to kind of debate about that correlation. Um, but what I found um, really interesting about that was it kind of really spoke to me about where I grew up and how we kind of took care of each other and how that didn't ever surface in the medical curriculum. 
And it seemed to be completely absent from any conversation that I was seeing about the future of health. And so I had a kind of bias to try to hear about that specific focus. Mm -hmm. um, but still, I mean, the, um, if the community is defined, um, I'm a little struggling here. Uh, if you say a community, uh, I think communities are very important. Uh, you know, we're, we're social animals, so we cannot live individually. So we're inherently part of a network. And, and that seems to be essential for survival. You know, we die if we're alone. Even hermits, you know, to some extent are, are connected to others. Um, uh, but right now, uh, uh, first of all, one can be a member of multiple communities at once, right? You could be- One is, yeah. One is, one is right? One is a member yeah. of multiple communities at once. And then the idea of health itself um, seems to be easier to apply to the individual rather than to the community. Um, I, you know, from, from my, uh, my reflections on this and from my uh, studying this a little bit, uh, just the, the etymology of the word health is, is whole, right? It has to do with wholeness, with integrity. And an individual can, be, can have integrity in a way. I mean, that would be sort of a, the primary um, paradigm, if you will. You know, you can talk about the integrity of a community, but that's a little bit looser. It's sort of a secondary uh, level. Yeah. And the community, you have members of a community that uh, go off and the community remains or, you know, it doesn't unaffect yeah. it or, and so forth. So, so I, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Or how are you uh, approaching this? Or is this still something under, you know, being explored? And So yes to everything that you just said. Um, um, I'm not sure that I had a particularly... Um, well worked out um, rationale at the time of starting. I just had this experience of where I grew up and that there was value in it. And then I read this thing about social capital and I had this sort of experience of what was happening at TEDMED. And I was like, how do we, um, how do we square those? And so that was really just my questioning. Um, what, what is that community saying about its health? And, and I mean, I agree with you that, that we're all members of multiple communities. Some of some, that membership can be latent so you don't sort of you know you don't you don't activate i'm a member of this that and the other until there's a kind of thing that you're focusing on um and i would argue that i mean i would look back and say that a lot of my early work was quite naive in that sense um and now i think the work as i'm sort of trying to work out how healthcare systems can think about it tends to have more of a geographic focus and or about excluded communities that haven't been part of the mainstream, um, whether they're sort of immigrant populations or indigent populations or even indigenous populations who haven't traditionally been part of the conversation. So how do you reach out to them? Um, and the, you know, the thing that I found quite interesting was is that when you sit down, when you, wh however you define who it is that you're trying to reach out to. So you know, there were classically people enduring poor health. So I'd be like, how are you reaching that community? I'm going to now do that every time I say the word community. Right. Um, I guess for the the audio podcast, I should say I was doing. Yeah. Um, so, um, what I found was quite interesting was is that when you ask the social innovators or the communities themselves, like what is what is health in the context in which you're operating, what was interesting was is they would often answer about things that we call the social determinants of health. We mm -hmm. being us power wielding physicians. 
Um, and so it was quite interesting was that, that, that pretty much every single time I asked this question, you ended up with this much broader understanding of health than the medical system was trying to operate in. Um, and I found that tension super interesting. And at the beginning, I think I was really quite guilty of sort of going, oh, yeah, yeah, well done, community innovator. What you're talking about is a social determinant of health. And now let me show you a big paper by WHO with 3,000 pages and blah, blah, blah. And then actually I realized again by one of the many people who disabused me of my power-wielding notions that actually what I was doing was once again kind of um, speaking down to the community, not allowing allow their knowledge to simply surface with parity is mine. Um, and so I thought that was quite interesting was that they already know those things matter to their health. They also know that those things actually matter to other areas as well. Right. But... Uh... Don't you think those contradictions or the tension and whatnot is um, uh, in many ways in, in inherent in the political system, the broader political system that we all live under? Um, you know, the, the social democracies are, um, they, they, they're going to try to, um, I mean, you know, they're based on, on the, the, the liberal ideals of the Enlightenment, which really focus on the individual. Right. Uh, our intention with organic communities developing, you know, within a, you know, a political structure, like a national, you know. And at the same time, it's recognizing that there's value in those communities and it's trying to preserve, but it, 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 I don't know how it can do it. I mean, I don't know how health systems, for example, which are really our emanation of the political systems, can yeah. go and say, well, we're going to help communities, you know, uh, articulate their ideas of health and, and so forth, when when the, the, the mere existence of the health system and the political structure behind it is going to be, you know, undermining that whole process. Yeah, the answer is yes. I mean, I, I, mean, I think that is, <laughs> I, th I think that is a central tension to all of this. Um, uh, and so, I mean, in England, where we have, uh, you know, fully developed social welfare system, some may argue that it's underfunded, but we have a fully developed social welfare system, and obviously a fully accessible healthcare system. You have what looks on paper to be an extraordinary set of provisions from central government, um, okay, filtered through local government, et cetera, et cetera. But you, it looks like you have this kind of amazing set of services. Quite frankly, it is amazing compared to the US, just to be blunt about that. Um, but I think at the same time, um, I think what's interesting is, is the, the way in which they operate are very much dampening down community voice. They operate in a way that gets into gets works against collective efficacy, uh, community agency, as I've right. been calling it in my work. And so there is this sort of extraordinary tension. So the question becomes, and I think this question is a little easier to answer in the UK, or I think the UK, no, not, not necessarily Scotland. Uh, actually, I would say that the other three nations of the UK are really kind of getting there. England is like pretty far behind, I think, at the moment in its thinking. But the question becomes is, is that if you have a centrally funded system, what is its social mandate? And it's quite interesting. There's a wonderful paper um, uh, uh, by, I can't remember the author at the moment, but it, it's about collective well-being. And it's essentially looked at how Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales have, through different um, trajectories of their own that had their own local context, have realized that what really matters around how they think about 
their role as government is around collective well-being. And what was quite interesting in that paper was it, it showed that it, or it, it didn't necessarily go into a huge amount of detail, but in Scotland, for instance, the healthcare system is still pursuing its own metrics, not realizing that its metrics feed into collective well-being. They sort of sit side by side. Well, they shouldn't. The biomedical metrics should be sitting un underneath collective well-being. So this is a sort of tension that is playing out everywhere. And I think that I think you know there becomes a sort of interesting question. It, you know, so we could you know we know a social determinant of health is economic security. So is every healthcare provider paying minimum wage? Has minimum wage been defined in that in that locality? And if it has, is it being paid? Um, right. Although so yeah, to, to push back a little bit here, uh, one could argue, and I mean I I come from sort of a tradition that would argue that uh, you know things that. Perhaps it may be evident to you that you know minimum wage would provide economic security. Uh, it's actually, um, uh, you know, it may be counterintuitive, but it may not be the case. It may be actually that uh, minimum wage laws uh, harm the poorest, who are unable then to, you know, who are priced out of uh, of uh, the job market. And 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 I know that there's arguments, and people will say, well, the evidence shows that you know this and that, but uh, it cannot be settled, you know, empirically. One has, to, you know, it has to has to do with what what your worldview is a little bit about about how societies you know ought to be organized and that sort of thing so so then yeah, it becomes I mean, quickly a sort of a, a kind of a a battle of political ideas and, yeah. and 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 which is fine but but i think they need to be then they we have to articulate them in such a way right that it's it, it, it yeah i mean i think one of the things that i think you know People quite often ask me about my work, and I, um, you know, do a fair amount of keynote speaking, as we were talking about before we hit record. But um, I think that I didn't know six and a half years ago that essentially my work that was all about kind of how do we actually listen to communities, how to respond to what communities are actually saying, would bump up against so much on essentially what is your political ideology. Um, and yet that's where I am. So the question I have in my work is, do I go, Ooh, that's a bit difficult. I'm going to go and, you know, watch some soccer instead. Or do I say to myself, well, this is it. This is the nature of the beast. Um, this is one of those things we need to be talking about. Um, and is it better? I think, I mean, what I've tried to do is I've taken the 12 principles um, with the help of others, I have worked out how to turn that into a tool that helps the healthcare system look inwards and say, how are we operating with the local communities? So just like trying to create a sense of discomfort that makes people say, yeah, maybe we can be doing things differently. Because I think if we can nudge a $2.7 trillion beast in the US, um, then you're going to have a significant impact, right? But I mean, clearly we're now in the realm of systems change and that is obviously a very very difficult thing to do but i don't know that the i don't know that the battle is anywhere else right i, I agree with you uh, i think so I, I think fundamentally it has to do uh, you know there's going to be some sort of fundamental political views that uh, inform uh, all these decisions um, you know I, i'd like to sh to share with you my, my perspective on this question because i think it's very important um, uh, so the, the the understanding of community, the sort of fostering the sense of community is, is um, very important. But I'm actually hopeful um, with, um, uh, I, I don't know about the UK, but I'm, I'm hopeful in the US with the movement that I'm sort of in, in a small way a part of, which is this movement where actually doctors have said, you know, we're leaving the system. 
we cannot, it's going to be too hard to get the system to view it our ways. And our way meaning, as far as I can, you know, if I want to articulate it or articulate something where I think there may be some common ground between your view and my view is essentially being decentralized as much as possible. I mean, and have the decision making be away from the behemoth uh, of, of, of the system. And, um, and, and out of that, you know, the hope would be that, you know, sort of communities or, or, or people, and you start with individuals because then you, you start with individuals who want, you know, who have their own idea about, you know, their health. Uh, because uh, as I said earlier, I think to me, health is primarily an individual characteristic, you know, primarily an individual. So individuals go meet with doctors, healers, physicians, you know, whatever you want to say, who are not uh, embedded in this big sort of uh, uh, structure. And then within that communities form and communities of, of like-minded of people who share the same values and whatnot, and it's organic and it's it's less rigid. It doesn't have the the rigidity of the political structures that are imposed by, by the, the bigger system uh, and so forth. So uh, we're very far away from that that point, uh, and so I, I, I'm not. I, I don't want to be uh, sort of uh, over optimistic. But that, to me, that's that's an approach that I kind of uh, uh, like, and I'm I, I want to be hopeful about. Um, I don't want to dismiss the idea that you could go to the NHS or the central agency and say, "Listen, you know, you're too top down, and you need to fund these communities and." But let them define, you know, from within themselves. But I have a hard time imagining that playing out in practice because, yeah, you know, the funder is gonna, you know, needs to be accountable to the voters and to yeah. the taxpayers and whatnot, and so, and they're gonna yeah. need to impose some rules and some, some, uh, and it has to be uh, equitable in, in whatever way you define it and however you define it, it's always problematic and yeah, that sort of thing. Well, so. uh, I mean, I would agree with you about how you constructed the idea of how we might want to think about health, how it's a little bit more ground up based on local individuals or grouped together into communities. Do we understand needs and then respond to that and all that kind of stuff? So I would definitely agree with you. And I think the industrialization of healthcare has had some benefits, but I think it's really lost local sensitivity through the process. And I think those benefits maybe, I mean, I, don't, I haven't really, you know, how can you say the benefits of, uh, uh, you know, I don't know how you do the balance, but, it, uh, my sense of it is, is that we've, we're trying, when we're still trying, you know, with gusto to create a one-size-fits-all approach to healthcare, which I just don't think is remotely working at all, and is partly a big reason why um, uh, we have unsustainable systems. I think in terms of how do you respond to communities, I mean, I think that there's sort of interesting methodologies exist around, you know, community organizing, how do you hear community voice, how do you create local prioritization, how do you work with... But really, when you get down to operationalizing at that level, what you're really talking about is power. Who has power over my health? And so, you know, whether it's individual, or whether it's at a collective level, or whether it's from a system, there is this whole thing about who has power over my body. And that's what has been, again, it's been really interesting to me and they're going on this journey of sort of being like, oh, how do we respond to communities in the local context in my super naive way six and a half years ago to now being realizing that actually, if we're going to start creating systems that are responding to people's context, we need to find methodologies that balance the knowledge of people and communities with the knowledge of the technocracy. And we have to accept that that's going to have trade-offs. And we also have to find different forms of governance for that way of working. 
because our current form of governance is sort of top down KPIs, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we all know this, the KPIs that operate at the kind of policy level have bear no resemblance to actually what's actually going on. They're often sort of very destructive. And so, you know, what you're really looking is, is for new relationships between healthcare systems and communities. And, and I don't know, I mean, I've been thinking about how that needs to be the next step of my work. I've been talking about, well, actually, what we need to do is get five healthcare systems to start trying to explore what that relationship looks like. Because only when you get a functioning relationship are you then going to be able to then work out how do you do governance. And I, my sense of it is, is that's probably the crux of getting into having a sustainable healthcare systems in all high income countries. Yeah, I, I um, you know, certainly that would be a, um, a step in the right direction. And my, um, my sense a little bit is, um, this 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 power imbalance that you're trying to minimize in a way, right? And you're trying to bring the the technology and the healthcare provider down to the level which is uh, more under the control of the community. Um, um, I, I think that that will come about perhaps if we have. Uh, and even more radical, and, and to me it's more radical, but in a way it's not radical at all because it's really the very old traditional uh, understanding of of what medicine is about. Is uh, You know, I go back to, to the um, uh, Hippocratic ideal um, and, and to stop thinking, because in a way, if you view it that way, the way you've described this sort of, uh, the healthcare providers bring the, the technology and the know-how and whatnot, but, but leaving that know-how under the control of the community. Um, it still has embedded in it, as, as far as I can tell, uh, this idea, this mechanical idea about health in a way that, that health is the, you know, a defect, it's a, a defect in the machine, right? In, in the that, body and so that, forth. So, so I, um, if, um, I mean, go ahead. I mean, I, before I, I ramble too much, but that, yeah. No, I so I think that the way in which I may have described that was not clear enough. So I, I'm not suggesting that you take the technical prowess and knowledge of the the you know the medical industrial complex and put it under the control of the communities. I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that uh, a biomedical understanding of it, of health combined with the technologies that can you know cure disease and you know progression of disease, all that kind of stuff is a form is an understanding of health that is and is very important but there's also a community understanding of health and that before we can start working out how you sort of who's got control over resources you need to kind of blend those understandings come to a kind of a common understanding and work from that common understanding and again i say that you know you go to community and say i mean quite interesting because you're suggesting that your experience of individuals is that they have a kind of very individualistic understanding of health i my experience has been very much the contrary which is that when you sit people down and say forget what your physician said what is health to you and they'll say relationship with my family they'll say you know the job stress what's going on in the neighborhood you know, you, you, once if you take your white coat off, take your tie off, they'll just talk to you as you know a human being, and then suddenly you start hearing it's much more, much broader understanding of health. And I think, I think the fact that the technical system doesn't hear that broad understanding of health is why so much community engagement work just doesn't work. 
because they go in and say, we want to come and talk to you about health and we've already defined what it is. Whereas I think that doesn't work. I think you first of all have to say, well, hold on, what are we actually talking about here? And then once you've answered that, you say, okay, great. Well, we've got some technical tools, but you've got, there's some other stuff that you guys need to look into, right? Because we're just physicians and we really are, we're not bringing any knowledge down to them. We're coming to the table with parity and saying, how do we work together to do the community bit that goes with the technical bit? Right. No, I, I can see that. Um, and, and that's that's very um, uh, that's interesting. That's good, and that's very um, uh, realistic. Uh, in a way, I'm I'm sort of I'm still sort of anachronistic because um, uh, I I believe well, and it's an interesting question. I mean, I don't know how I can articulate it, but uh, is health instead of separating it um, in two ways? You have the biomedical model, which is going to be essentially the Cartesian analytical, you know, the machine, you know, and the disease and whatnot and how the molecules work together and blah, 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 right? And how we can optimize that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you have the community understanding of, you know, we're, we're people in a community and we, we need to love one another and, and uh, be comfortable and have food on the table and that sort of thing. Um, and that dualistic, uh, to me, remains, I mean, is a problem and I'm, and I'm hoping for uh, um, a way to uh, a concept of health that we unify those, but that's uh, that's very tricky and challenging um, uh, to think about. I mean, I, I would like health to be at once um, um, taken into account, you know, uh, emanate from the individual or pertain to the individual, and from that um, uh, starting point. Um, uh, you know, translate into a healthy community, into what what living in a healthy community being. Because, to the extent that I'm a human being and you're a human being, and Bob and Joe and and um, Brenda and Ella, we're all human beings in a way. We're the same, and therefore our health, you know, the concept of health objectively ought to be something that resembles, you know, is is going to be similar, and. Um, and, and, and the healthy relationship, the community, the how we live together w will come out of, you know, us being healthy, you know, individually, all individually. That's very difficult because it's a very um, uh, anti-modern uh, view of, of how things are. So it's, it's very hard for me to articulate this in a way that, uh, that can convince others that that's, um, so let that's me, the way to go. Yeah, go ahead. So let me jump in on that. So, so um... I think that I would agree with that as a challenge, um, but I think that you learn by doing. And I think that we know enough about how does a technocracy come and work with the community? How do you blend knowledge? How do you create prioritization? How can you think about new forms of government governance? I think all of that is actually within our ability right now. Um, it takes, it's hugely uncomfortable for the healthcare side of things because the healthcare side of things has been used to being in charge. And so there's a sort of process that's required and trust that's required. And I think so many community health initiatives I've seen haven't spent enough time building trust between the two parties, although there are multiple parties really. So I think that, I think we have enough tools to start and in so doing at a local level, we'll start finding those bigger constructs of health. Um, and I say that, right. if I just finish the point, Michelle, so I was thinking, because I wanted to go back to something you said earlier on, which is that some of this is organic and comes up locally. 
And I would agree with that. So I would say, rather than worry about trying to think about you know, what is the overarching theory, why not allow a local, I mean, even the word allow is problematic because it's a sort of power mediated word, but why not create the ability for local organizations to, you know, work together to come up with this broader construct of health, work in their locality, and then work at a meta level to say, what are we seeing as the features that seem to exist through actual work? Because otherwise what happens is, is you kind of suddenly you have a PhD thesis and you write a grant report and actually all that happens is, is the money and all of that stays with the privileged and they sit there and pontificate and you suddenly have another paper which had no effect on the communities that needed their help. And so I think we can learn a lot by doing and I think that, I think that most healthcare systems in high income countries are at this crisis and, right. they're, and, and they just need a dose of bravery to say, let's Let's try to work out what this is. But I think that it's so gray, so woolly for people at the moment that they're just, there's basically fear. And, you know, the fear of losing, and that fear is from the people who have the resources of the power, which is, of course, the healthcare system, and they don't really want to lose power, right? So you kind of like, so how do you go in there and say, this is not a loss that is, you know, this is about us finding another approach to health that is actually going to be sustainable, that's going to give you a budget that enables you to fund other things in your society, just have healthcare. Yeah, but let, let me throw a challenge at you, maybe a practical challenge, uh, just as an example. Um, let's say, you know, around contentious issues, let's say transgender health, right? So if your community is going to be the transgender community, it may have its own idea about health, sure. but then it may be another community in which there are transgender people, non-transgender people, some with this religious view, that religious view, this secular view, where the idea of, of health is going to be problematic for an individual within that community. And I think problems like these are going to make it kind of difficult for the technocracy and the biomedical model to come and say, well, we're going to work with you community, because once you have that tension within a community or potentially that tension within a community, then it's going to say, well, we need the general rule that works for everybody. Right? Yeah. And so. So I guess my response to that is um, I'm going to channel someone else who I've learned a lot from who said to me that the easy stuff has been tried and, and we're failing. Right. So like, um, so like I'm doing a, a talk tomorrow and, and, you know, they're interested in the, the tech future of health and, and I'm going to show a bunch of slides of like interesting background and then I'm going to show them the rate of diabetes, which is just simply increasing. Right. So we're like, we're sort of messing around with stuff. Um, and then, you know, we sort of get really excited and there's investment capital and we try to do this, that and the other, but actually the rate is going up, right? So my sense of it is, is that if we had answers, if it was easy, if we could get our arms around it easy enough, if we could write a simple theory of change, all of that stuff has been tried. And as far as I'm concerned, it's now is the time to grapple with the difficult stuff. And I think there are great people in our healthcare systems who, who all know this and they just need some, some structure, which is why I, I produced the 12 principles, some guidance, which is why I created the tools and they need to learn from each other and go on this journey. I think if we don't do that, then I think, you know, one of my sort of things about, you know, when I feel like being a bit spiky, I always say never listen to a baby boomer because they knew all the problems and did nothing about them. And now they've retired with great long-term health and, you know, living on amazing pensions, left all the problems to us. Well, so my sense of it is, is as a 44-year-old physician who sort of is looking at these problems, we don't have any choice 
but to grapple with the difficulty. We can't be as cowardly as the baby boomers. You know, I'm I'm 100% behind you on that. And to the extent that whatever you do is decentralizing, I support it also 100%. And it is. And you're right that it will force us to confront uh, fundamental questions at the end of the day. We have to confront those fundamental questions. What does it mean to be healthy? How do you define it? How do you end? Other than you know, anything beyond that is rearranging the the the, uh, the chairs on the on the Titanic and right, uh, right, and so and we've been doing that for long enough, right? So like, the, so when I started in this space, we were rearranging under the name of Health IT. Then we were rearranging right. under Digital Health. Now we're rearranging the AI. It's all noise and nonsense. That's absolutely. There are some fundamental things not being talked about, and that to me felt like the only thing to work on. Pritpal, that's been wonderful. And uh, before we we part here, do you want to tell uh, how where people can uh, follow you? Uh, uh, you know, the, your website, your Twitter handle, or what's what's the best way to for people everything, to learn more about your ideas? So everything is just under pstamba.com. Pritpal S Tamba. So pstamba.com. That's also uh, pstamba is also my Twitter handle. Um, and actually, I'm in the process of bringing all my projects under a single website. And I'm going to get back to spending time writing about the interesting social innovators that I come across. And I think in the future, I'm, st I'm still trying to grapple with how do I take it to the next stage? So I think this idea that I talked about of having pilots is the next stage. But I also feel as though I need to do more writing, more practice-based research, like learning from the people at the forefront so that I can be disabused of yet more of my notions and, um, and feel even more foolish as I continue this journey. Fritpal, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at akkadandcoca.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. Akkadandcoca.com.